Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. Hey, it's Thursday, uh, December the 20th, and I have spent my week enjoying Christmas things, um, wrapping up last-minute presents, doing a lot of cooking, made doing a lot of baking, made fudge, which, by the way, every year I try to make fudge. And some years it's so runny we have to eat it with a spoon, and we end up just putting it over ice cream. And some years it's so hard that, like, we had to hack it with a knife to get any pieces off. But this year, it actually turned out perfect. It's the best fudge I've made ever. So I'm very excited about that. And we made some chocolate-covered strawberries, which were absolutely delicious. So I have lots of baking done. I think I'm ready for Christmas next week. Uh, now I'm cleaning the whole house and getting it all ready. And so I have um, just really enjoyed this week of relaxing, hanging out with my family, and getting ready for Christmas. So... Like I said last week, uh, we weren't going to necessarily do a new episode this week. I wasn't going to spend time doing research and things like that. Um, But what we are going to do is play some clips from the year. So it has been almost one year since we started doing this podcast, once a week podcast. I started it last January. So the very first clip I'm going to play is actually from our first episode. So I went back and I was listening to this. And, oh, wow. I think I've gotten a little bit better since that first episode. Um, definitely I've learned a little bit more about using uh, the microphone and the computer and gotten a little bit better at that part of it. Um, but I still want to show this, let you listen to this clip because uh, it's talking about the UN and some of the immoral things they've done. Uh, and some of the problems they've caused in countries. So we're going to jump right now into this first um, clip from the UN. So here you go. I hope you enjoy. Everyone talks about the UN with such respect. It drives me crazy. It seems to be just a given that the UN is this great organization that we all need to respect. I'm going to explain to you why the UN is garbage. Actually, it's worse than garbage. It's evil. I remember when I was in high school, I first heard about the UN. Well, okay, I'm sure I learned about it in elementary school, but in high school, I was actually paying attention. And I remember hearing my teacher talk about how amazing the UN was, how it was keeping us safe, it was going to make sure that there was no World War III. But as the teacher was explaining it, I had one thought. So what if the UN turns bad? I mean, what if someone like Hitler ended up running the UN? Wouldn't that make the UN actually dangerous? I mean, what if all the bad guys in the world found a way to be in charge of the UN. That sounds kind of scary, and basically that's exactly what has happened. So the UN was founded in 1948. There was 50 original countries. Poland joined almost right away, making it 51. Canada, not actually on that list. But anyway, so even the original 51 countries, there were some problematic countries, but at least for the most part, it was only countries that had supported the fight against Nazis that were allowed in. That's basically changed. Anyone can pretty much be in the UN now. In 1948, the UN did what was probably the only useful thing it's done in its entire existence. It granted the Jewish people their own country and gave Israel back to the Jewish people. I'm pretty sure it's regretted it ever since and has basically done everything it can to destroy Israel. The UN is a huge failure. Let me share some examples. So there's Somalia in 1991. So the dictator government ship is overthrown, the UN immediately leaves, and Somalia is thrown into this big civil war, and there's also a famine. So the next year, the UN decides, okay, we're going to return, and they promise they're going to send 3,000 troops who are going to arrive and help. So the people were all hopeful and excited, except that the troops never showed up. So eventually, after a few years, the UN decided, uh, we probably should go fix that problem over in Somalia. So they went over there, they sent in food aid and peacekeepers. Well, the food aid drove the local farmers out of business, and the peacekeepers beat, harassed, and killed the Somalian people. They attacked hospitals, they shot into crowds of people, women and children were killed. According to the UN, all of those who were killed in the area were in combat area, so they counted as combatants. Okay, there's Rwanda. January 11th, 1994, the UN was warned that a genocide was going to take place in Rwanda. They completely ignored it. Then on April 6th of that year, the president of Rwanda was killed when his plane went down. 
This started the killing of 800,000 Tutsi people. The UN did nothing to stop it. In fact, the UN ordered the troops to use no military force. So basically, they stood and watched the genocide take place. But it gets worse. Thousands of Tutsis went to a school that the UN was protecting to hide in it for safety. The UN then lied to the people, told them, promised them that they would not leave, but then secretly left the school and the Tutsis were then massacred. In 1995, in the middle of the Bosnian War, the UN set up safe zones for people to escape the war. Then, the UN refused to allow the troops to defend the safe zones. So, about four months after the safe zones were established, the Serbs realized there's no one defending them. So they marched in and killed thousands of people. There have been 70 occasions where the UN has gotten involved. In all of them except two, they failed miserably and made the problem worse. Then there's all the corruption that's in the UN. In Lebanon, the UN is actually selling food that's supposed to be aid. They don't even take the labels off. You go into the supermarket to buy food, it still has the label on it that says UN aid, not to be sold. Nobody, not even the UN, disputes the fact that peacekeepers brought cholera to Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. More than 8,000 people died. Over 650,000 people got sick. Thanks, UN. That was helpful. This is on top of all the major sex scandals that the UN has been a part of. The troops have been accused of rape, helping sex traffickers. So that's the UN. They're garbage. But it gets worse, not just on the ground, in the actual UN assemblies. Did you know in 1975, the UN actually declared that Zionism is racism? So if you believe the Jews should be allowed to live in Israel and that Israel is a country, you're a racist, according to the UN. The UN hates Israel. Over the last few decades, they basically turned into a hate Israel group. Over the last 70 years, the UN has adopted 135 resolutions and 68 have been against Israel. That's more than half of them. From 2012 to 2015, the UN made 97 resolutions and 83 of them were against Israel. Have you paid attention to the news in the last few years? There's been a lot of countries that have done a lot of bad things. But of the 97 resolutions, 83 were against Israel. That's ridiculous. Okay, okay let's look at some of these. So there's the United Nations Educational Organization. They do 10 resolutions a year, all of them, 100% are against Israel, except for one year they made one resolution against Syria. Other than that, 100% against Israel. Here are some countries that they haven't made resolutions against. There's Cambodia. Almost the entire educated class in Cambodia was killed in the 70s. There's Haiti. Women in Haiti, only 25% of them finish high school. And if you go to the rural areas, it's only 2%. There's Papua New Guinea, where 60% of the women are illiterate. And if you go to the rural areas, it's 85. There's Palestine, which since they marry off their girls when they're still little girls, they don't go to school either. There's Pakistan. The education for Pakistan women is among the lowest in the world. There's Afghanistan. Only 3% of the girls get a primary education. And those girls are often attacked with acid on the way to school. Primary school girls. There's Ghana, an estimated 23 million girls do, are not in school in Ghana. There's Ethiopia. On the average, girls in Ethiopia go to school for two years. There's Liberia, three out of five women in Liberia can't read. There's Bangladesh, more than half of the girls under 19 are married, and yeah, not in school. And there's Turkey, where parents believe that if you educate girls, you'll ruin them and spoil them and they won't be able to get married. And there's Yemen, where two out of three women in Yemen are illiterate. So 10 resolutions a year, one against Syria, all the rest, all 10 every year against Israel. You're probably thinking, whoa, Israel must be really bad. I mean, all those other countries are horrible. Israel must be terrible. No, actually, Israel's pretty great. Uh, Here's some things. So children must, it's the law, they must attend school from age 5 to 18. It's the law. The culture also pushes for higher education and education is a core value of Israel. What's the literacy rate for females in Israel? The literacy rate, 95.8%, percent 
making it the place in the Middle East you want to live if you're a girl. But maybe the UN's targeting them because it's hard for the Arabs in Israel. Nope, school is taught in both Hebrew and Arabic. And although biblical studies are mandatory, you can choose Muslim, Christianity, or Judaism. And the teachers are Jewish, Arab, and Christian. But still, every year the UN passes 10 resolutions against Israel, condemning its educational practices. Then there's the World Health Organization. One week a year they meet and they talk about all the global health policies. And resolutions are made to address global health issues. But no one particular country is targeted. Well, except for Israel. That one's targeted. Yep, every year they have a special designated resolution just for Israel. So North Korea wasn't targeted, even though 5% of their population died of starvation. Africa, where two-thirds of the population have no access to health care. Nope, not them. Philippines, where 11 women die every single day giving birth. Or Venezuela, where its population has lost an average of 19 pounds a person because they're starving. None of those countries targeted. Only Israel. Israel, where every person receives free health care. And it's one of the best places in the world to get health care. Here are some of the things Israel has invented. They invented the pill cam. It's an easy way for doctors to see everything inside the body. They invented something called the Reul, which made paraplegic men now running races. They've invented cures for cancer. On top of all that, Israel has given aid to its neighbors who have faced the problems of civil war and terrorism. Still, only Israel is targeted by the World Health Organization. Then there's the Internal Labor Organization. This is supposed to improve labor conditions and regulate work hours and fight unemployment, protect workers. Only one single country was pointed out in a report, you guessed it, Israel. So there's 30 million slaves today, most in Africa. Maybe the UN could target that. No, only Israel, even though they have strict laws about overtime, minimum wage, age requirements. It's basically a great place to work and live. So then why? Why is Israel always targeted? Well, the UN is run by the monsters of the world. Anti-Semitism has always been a thing in Europe. And there's 50 Muslim countries that all want every Jew dead. And then there's the secular left. They hate Christians, they hate Jews, and they see them as Western civilization. And for some reason, Western civilization is bad. Most of the countries in the UN hate Israel because they hate Jews. But they don't only hate Jews, they love evil. This is ridiculous. The UN held a moment of silence when Kim Jong-il died. What kind of crazy holds a moment of silence for a man who publicly killed people for watching Disney movies and fed people alive to hungry dogs because they were caught reading illegal books? But literally, these monsters run the UN. Here's a few countries who are currently on the Security Council of the UN. Afghanistan, China, Cuba, Iraq, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela. What in the world? This is ridiculous. So what do we do? What do we do as Christians? Well, for starters, we need to understand what anti-Semitism is because it's coming into our churches. Christians who don't understand the UN's hatred for Jewish people, they hear all these resolutions and assume the Jewish people are bad. Way too often they hear Christians saying extremely anti-Semitic things. Remember this, the Jewish people are the only nation God specifically built. God put an unconditional promise on the Israel people. Unconditional promise. He would bless those who blessed Israel. He would curse those who cursed them. And history has shown God has kept that promise. Do not allow hatred for the Jewish people to enter your heart. So that was our first clip um, from the first episode. Uh, so hopefully I've gotten a little bit better since that first episode. We're going to jump ahead now to episode 38. So it was our 38th episode and I talked for a little bit um, in that episode about climate change and the UN and how the UN is using climate change um, as a way of controlling us. So with each of these clips, I'm showing um, just a little bit from each episode. So you can go back and listen to the full episode if you want. But right now, here is uh, episode 38 and the UN and climate change. Well, there's a push from the UN to control the world. And they're doing this through open borders and something called 
environmentalism. After the end of World War II, FDR looked at the Manhattan Project and realized that if the government controlled the scientists and the scientific community, the government would have a lot of control. So a paper was produced called Science, the Endless Frontier. The government began to pay for studies and pour money into the science community. And once the government was the primary funder of the science field, the government owned the science community. The government will give money to the studies that are going to produce what the government wants. The UN has already used this strategy. The UN, by the way, is anti-capitalism, anti-sovereignty, anti-Israel. The UN wants to control the governments, and they do this by creating a problem that is a global problem that all the countries must agree to solve. Although it is only the capitalist countries with Western ideologies that are forced to comply. If you've heard the phrase, think globally, act locally, this is actually a propaganda phrase invented by René Debeau as a way to push the Agenda 21 into the mainstream of pop culture in Western civilization. The idea of Agenda 21 is to use environmentalism as a way to gain control of the world, but this is done through local municipalities. They are much easier to bribe. Do you find your local government, your township office has so many regulations you can't keep up? The laws in your local township seem overbearingly controlling, and if these laws tried to get passed on a country scale, we would all freak out. But somehow we suck it up when done on the smallest local scale. But if every small local scale puts these regulations on its citizens, the citizens still all end up under control. To make these regulations, the UN had to release studies to prove the world was about to end. So the IPPC was created. It's an international organization that tells the world what to do to solve the emergency of global warming. But is there an emergency? In the last 100 years, our planet has warmed nine-tenths of one degree over the last 100 years. So how is the UN creating this emergency? Well, the UN has 32 computer models that are created by different countries that are in the UN and controlled by the UN. 31 of these models have predicted the world will end because of global warming. One of these models has said everything is completely fine. 31 of these models have been disastrously wrong on everything they've predicted so far. You can see that from the comedy movie Inconvenient Truth. That's a movie that was made as a documentary, but is now a comedy since we've lived past all the ends of the worlds that were predicted. One model that's been extremely accurate. Interesting that one model is actually controlled by Russia, and that's kind of weird. The Russian model left something out of its programming. It left out the coding that said humans are the contributing factor to climate change. Because the other 31 models have humans as the reason for climate change, the more humans, the more human activity, the worse the future will be. You know, you've heard of it. Your carbon footprint, that's where it comes from. Russia has no carbon footprint in its model. And yet it's the Russian model that's been predicting the most accurate changes in the climate. Still, the Russian model is ignored by the UN and it's the other 31 models that are used even though every prediction has been way off. Then in 2007, the American Supreme Court gave the EPA the right to create regulations if they can prove that there was an imminent threat to human life. And exactly 90 days after Obama came into power, the EPA used the 31 models from the UN to prove there was an imminent threat to human life. And then they began to impose regulations, regulations that crippled the coal industry and sent factories overseas. The media will point to the fact that there are very few scientists who are saying anything different. That's because the government controls the scientists. If you say you don't believe in the UN global warming alerts or you don't believe climate change is anything to worry about and not created by man, then you're a denier and there'll be no grants for you. No grants means no job. If you want to be a working scientist, you have to sign on to climate change, global warming propaganda, and you actually have to help create that propaganda. In 2015, the UN moved one giant step closer to world domination, the Paris Climate Accord. 
In this accord, countries could willingly sign on to the accord and make promises of what they would do. India made a promise that they would increase their admissions. China made a promise that they would increase their admissions. Western countries like Canada and United States, they would decrease their admissions with, of course, regulation and taxes. But then the UN hit a giant bump in the road, a Trump-sized bump. Donald Trump won the election and said, we're out of that Paris Climate Accord. That is a bad deal. Canada is still in the deal, and that's why we're getting this new carbon tax, so we can stay in the Paris Climate Accord. That is completely useless. Here's the weird thing nobody actually wants to talk about. We've been putting more carbon in the air, but you have to remember, go back to grade three science class, that's actually plant food. And guess what? Our planet is actually more green today than it's ever been in the history of recorded plant life. In fact, it's getting 5% greener every year. We have more grass, and that means more food. We have less famines. Today is the best time in history to live. Actually, if we didn't have terrorism right now, we would have a fantastic planet. The energy that the UN is trying to force us to stop using has given us the most comfortable life we could ever imagine. Our poorest people today live better and longer than royalty did 200 years ago. We live better. We live longer today because of energy. But you're probably thinking about the storms we have. As I am recording this, there is a typhoon headed to some islands that will probably devastate those communities. Does global warming create these storms? No. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is weather getting worse? And the answer is no. The weather is not getting worse. What is getting worse is the damage done from the weather. The reason there's so much more damage is that, well, we have more people. We have larger communities. We have more buildings. We have more things to be destroyed. The models are being used to create the illusion that storms are getting worse. You'll notice they range from the 1970s to 2002. The reason they don't go before 1970s or after 2002 is this. The graphs from the 1920s to today show that there's no change. There was, however, a curve where the crest of the curve went from 1970 to 2002. So what we are being shown is just one small part of the graph and then told the weather is getting worse. Here's the thing. If you live in Alaska, you're going to get snowstorms and lots of them. If you live in the hurricane coast, you're going to get hurricanes. When I lived in Newfoundland, we got massive snowstorms. If you don't want your home to be destroyed by an earthquake, don't build on a fault line. And if you don't want your home destroyed by a hurricane, don't live on the hurricane coast. If you hate snow, don't move to Newfoundland. All right, so we've looked at now two clips. So we've seen the UN and how they try to help other countries, or at least say they're trying to help other countries, but actually end up making things worse. We've also looked at um, the controlling and how they're using climate uh, technology or climate um, propaganda, really, to control us. So I'm going to be talking in this next clip, and it's from episode 41. And we're going to be talking about how the UN... Uh, is controlling us now with this new compact for migration. But I'm also talking to you a little bit about how they are using our children and how they are starting to put propaganda into our children's programming. So here we go. This is from episode 41. So if you want to go back and listen to the full episode, you can. It's 2016 in the UN headquarters overlooking the East Rivers in New York. A document is being drafted. The New York Declaration. In this declaration is a paragraph labeled the Global Compact for Migrants. There are six objectives in this paragraph. The first sentence is a fluffy sentence about how we all need to care about each other and all humans are valuable. I agree. Sounds very nice. The very next sentence is terrifying. It says, and I quote, the compact will make an important contribution to global governing. We read that again. The compact will make an important contribution to global governing. This paragraph was to be the beginning of the UN literally taking over the world. The paragraph went on to make it clear that migration must be seen as a human right. Every country must accept all migrants coming for any reason. 
Now, 2016 ends with an election and Donald Trump becomes a new president. The new president throws a huge wrench into the plan. There's no way Trump is having anything to do with the New York Declaration. At the same time, the UN was trying to take a large section of Israel away and Obama was going along with it. But before Trump was even sworn in, that was ended also. But the New York Declaration was not over yet. Neither was that particular paragraph. What was needed was a way to convince the citizens that migrants should be allowed to enter their country for any reason. In 2016, nobody would have gone along with that idea. But just two years later, many Americans are demanding that their own borders be opened and caravans of migrants be allowed to enter. And the media is encouraging this. After the election of 2016, a new path was taken. In that same UN building overlooking the water, Megan Paschal was meeting with UN staff members. Megan works for Mattel Incorporated and is in charge of a product that's been on the shelves for more than 70 years. A little train named Thomas. Now, why would Megan be meeting with UN staff to talk about a toy train? The office is full of staff and also computer screens where UN staff are Skyping in from around the world. This is clearly a very important meeting. Staff are, are Skyping in from all around, including one from Africa, an African program advisor for the UN women. She is Skyping in from Kenya. What the UN is going to do is help Megan create a more woke version of Thomas the Train. It will take 18 months of meetings and plannings before the new woke version of Thomas the Train is completed. Now, why would the UN care about a fictional train that tells stories for kids two to five years old? Well, Thomas is a global franchise in a lot of countries and in a lot of languages. Parents don't really pay attention to Thomas. He's seen by everyone as a safe viewing option for children. The outreach capacity is actually amazing. The writers and the UN delegates decide they will come up with a plan to incorporate the UN Sustainable Development Goals into the show. Each goal has to be looked at to see how it can fit into the show designed for two to five-year-olds. The writers of the show are not happy. This is annoying, and it's going to make for bad scripts but they're not listened to. The UN delegates are now running the show. Six of the goals are picked and ideas of how to incorporate the goals into the show are discussed. What the group finalizes on after 18 months is a new show called Thomas and Friends, Big World, Big Adventures. In this new show, Thomas is forced to leave Sodar and will have to, for the first time, see the real world. New characters are invented an orange car named Rebecca, an African car named Nia, and a Chinese engine named Hong Mei. Lines are written that will need to be added into the show. Here are some of the lines. Remember, we're talking kids two to five. Here's one. Nia can't go back home because she was displaced. And here's another one. Some think girls are weak, but I know that's not true. Gordon can pull an engine and Rebecca can pull the engine. If boys and girls aren't given the same opportunities, they might not be given the chance to work as equals, and that's not fair. Not only lines, plots are also drawn up, including a plot that involves a forest fire and a bird with a bag of potato chips on his head. This plot is to make sure kids are all growing up to be good environmentalists. Another person present at this meeting is Jeffrey Braze. He is the UN Chief of Non-Governmental Organizations, Relations, and Advocacy. What does that mean? It means his job is to create propaganda for the UN and get it into Western entertainment. He did have a huge plan with Warner Brothers. They worked together to create Wonder Woman. But that ended quickly when the Warner Brothers hired an Israeli woman to play Wonder Woman, and she refused to stop talking about how much she loved Israel. And we all know how the UN thinks about Jews and Israel. They hate them with a passion. So the UN cut ties with that project. But now here he is, finishing up a project with Thomas the Tank. One problem. You can't put UN in the credits. That's not going to go over well with the parents. Well, the few that pay attention. What you can do is put the letters SDG in the credits. 
SDG stands for the UN Sustainable Development Goals. In 2018, Thomas's new show came to ABC in Australia, the Super RTL in Germany, Televisia in Mexico, Treehouse in Canada, in the U.S., Thomas and Friends, which normally was on PBS, now changed its tracks and went to Nick Jr. Cartinio in, in Italy, Minimi in Poland, Telekids in the Netherlands, VTM in Belgium, and AMC Minimax in Eastern Europe, Hop in Israel, Channel One in Russia, and TV Cultura in Brazil. They all began airing this new UN version of Thomas the Tank. So there you go. Tots from around the world now have a new cartoon written by the UN with a globalist activism mixed in with a little bit of commercialism. Fantastic. Sounds just what the tots need. So while that was happening, what was happening to the New York Declaration? And more importantly, what happened to that one paragraph called UN Compact for Migration? Well, a man named Ahmed Hussain became the Minister of Immigration in Canada. He himself is a refugee from Somalia, and he begins working with the UN and helps take this one paragraph and turn it into a 34-page document. The document is called the UN Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. Let's listen to that again. The UN Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and regular migration. Now, just a side note, this is the same man, Ahmed Hussan, that won't give visas to two little kids who've been adopted by Canadian families to come to Canada. So we're going to take an unnumbered amount of migrants, but we're not going to take those two little kids. To learn more about those two little kids, check out my website, lauraleesiemens.com, and under the podcast. The story was just put out this week, so go ahead and listen to it and share it. All right, so back to this. It's important here to stop for a minute and take some clarifications. First of all, a refugee is a person fleeing persecution. For example, a Christian, uh, an atheist, or a homosexual fleeing an Islamic country. That is a refugee and has legal ways to enter a country. Immigration is also a legal way to enter the country. My family came from Mexico and Germany, and I have many friends that are immigrants. The process takes time. And the government can allow or not allow someone to immigrate to Canada. Migration is not legal. Migration is, for example, the caravan that is trying to get through the American border. That's migration. This document is not about refugees or immigrants. This is about migration. It is the very title of the document. In this document, the idea is that migration is now so common and every country has to deal with it. The term illegal immigrant is not used. Instead, the term irregular migration is used. Does that sound familiar? That's the same term that Mohammed Hassan and Justin Trudeau have been using when they talk about the illegal entries happening in our country. And just for a fun fact side note, in October of this year, we had 6,000 illegal entries or irregular migration as Trudeau calls it. 1,334 from Roxham Road in Quebec. 23 from Manitoba, 37 from BC, and the rest were coming in through the country through a port of entry. So 6,000 in one month. We have 55,000 so far this year. And I'm guessing once we sign this document in a few weeks, that number is going to skyrocket. And if you're wondering if this is normal, under Harper, we had around 10,000 a year, which is a lot, but not even close to 55,000. Okay, so back to this pack that we're about to sign. The compact says that it's non-binding, which means the UN can't enforce it even if you do sign up. However, that doesn't really make me feel better about it, especially since Canada is helping to write it. Canada was the first country to endorse it and has said that they will pressure every other country to join. This is a document that will create a large amount of migrants from Islamic countries to the West. Now, I understand there are a lot of people in Islamic countries that need to escape. The Jewish people have obviously left a long time ago, and any Jewish person in an Islamic country would be killed immediately. Christians need to leave. Atheists really need to leave. Homosexuals need to leave. But that's a different thing. And again, to clarify, we're not talking about refugees here. In fact, here is a quote. It cannot be stressed enough that this agreement is not about fleeing persecution or their rights to protection under international law. 
Instead, this agreement is a radical idea that migration for any reason is something that needs to be promoted, enabled, and protected. End quote. The Migration Pact will make migration a human right. Every nation that signs it will be giving its sovereignty to the UN. There will no longer be such thing as an illegal immigrant. All immigrants will be migrants, and that is now a human right. Here's a quote from the document. Quote, Migrants are entitled to the same universal human rights and fundamental freedoms which are respected and fulfilled at the time. End quote. This sounds really nice until we ask some questions. What do you mean by universal human rights and fundamental freedoms? Does this mean free health care, schooling, housing? The language is just very vague. Europe tried this and it didn't go well for them. They had 205 terrorist attacks just in the year 2017 alone. So what about this plan? Well, it has 23 objectives. Here's just a few of the things Canada will agree to do. We're going to start by putting together a website that will basically advertise why migrants should come to Canada. We'll talk about what kind of training and educational opportunities we'll give them. The website will tell them about any laws that we have here in Canada. We'll tell about the living costs here in Canada, the living conditions as well. Basically, we're going to create a website that will tell them why Canada is awesome, how to get here, and what free stuff will get them once they come. What the pact also tells us is that it's up to us, Canada, to reduce any risk the migrant will have coming to our country and give them any assistance that they need. What does that mean? We have United States and the ocean. Will we be providing transportation to our country? And what assistance will we be giving them? And also, who is going to pay for that? All of this has to be done in the language of the migrant. So, of course, that's another layer of costs. And also, something I feel Quebec might have a problem with. They don't even want to put things in English. Once the migrant has arrived in Canada, then we'll need to provide the migrant with targeted, gender-responsive, child-sensitive accessibility and comprehensive information. Also, free legal services and guidance on their rights and obligations on how to comply with national and local laws. We will need to help them obtain work, residence permits, and access to basic services. So I have a question. What do they mean by basic services? And also, who is going to pay for all of that stuff? Remember here, we're talking about migrants, not refugees. Anyone can come in. It will be open border. Now, the pact does say that countries will still have their borders and they'll be allowed to refuse entry. However, if migrants come into the country, they cannot use any force to protect their border. So if you can't protect your border and you can use no force to stop somebody from coming into your country, then you don't have a border. One of the troubling objectives comes with number 16. Here it is, and I'll quote it for you. Empowered to realize full inclusion and social cohesion. Now, how do they want to do that? Well, here's what they say, another quote. Promote mutual respect for the cultures, traditions, and customs of communities of distinctions and migrants by, ready for this, exchanging and implementing best practices of integration policies, programs, and activities including on the ways to promote acceptance of diversity and facilitate social cohesion and inclusion. So what are we going to do here in Canada? Are we going to expect the migrants to be Canadian, to embrace our way of life, our Canadian traditions? No, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to promote the customs and practices of the country that they're leaving. Now remember, it's very unlikely the West is going to be going to Islamic countries. No, it will be Islamic countries coming here. And there's a few customs I'm not really cool with. You know, killing gays, marrying children, female genital mutilation, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, dressing little boys up like girls and then raping them, killing your daughters if they start acting too Western. They call that honor killing. There's nothing honorable about it. Beating your wife, teaching your children that their goal in life is to stab a Jew, or teaching your children if they kill themselves, while killing other people, they get to go to heaven and have a whole bunch of virgins. The list goes on and on. And, you know, I'm not really going to say, hey, cool, a new custom. Well, all cultures are equal. Here's a fun fact. Not all cultures are equal and some cultures are actually evil. Objective 16 also says that migrants must be given inclusion into all labor markets, 
education, and health services, and they have to have the same inclusion as a citizen. So our schools and hospitals that we pay for for, with our tax dollars, they have to have access to all of it. Remember, we're not talking refugee here. We're talking migrant. So come to Canada. We'll learn your customs. We'll give you a health card so you can use all of our health benefits. Your kids can go to our schools. We'll make sure you have work. I see a few possible problems. The pact also knows that not everyone's going to like this idea. You think? Here's what they say about that. Quote, recognizing that societies are undergoing demographic, economic, social, and environmental changes at different scales that may have been resulted from migration. Now, what does that mean? I'll translate it. Some parts of society might find that this actually sucks. So how is the UN going to solve this? Here we go. Another quote, disagreement with the agenda will not be tolerated. States will work to dispel misleading narratives that generate negative perceptions of migrants. Here's another quote. States will promote independent, objective, and quality reporting of media outlets, including internet-based information. How are they going to do that? Here we go. Keep quoting. By educating media professionals on migration-related issues and terminology. Whoa, stop the presses. So the UN is going to demand that Canada educates its journalists and then tells them the terminology to use. It actually gets even more interesting when you keep on reading. Here we go. Investing in ethical reporting standards and advertising and stopping all public funding or material support to a media outlet that systematically promotes intolerance xenophobia, racism, and any form of discrimination towards migrants in full respect of freedom of the press. Wait, there is not freedom of the press if you are educating them, giving them the terminology, and then punishing them if they don't say what you want them to say. That is actually the opposite of freedom of the press. And Trudeau has already started that. This week, he announced he's going to give $600 million. Listen to that again. $600 million dollars of your tax dollars every year to the press as long as they meet his criteria of journalism. And one of those guidelines, no critical discussion on migration. So this money does not go to a journalist, it goes to the media outlets. So if a journalist wants to speak the truth, their bosses won't let them because the media outlet will not be eligible for the money if they do. So even before the pact is implemented here in Canada, Justin has made sure the journalists will be silent. What are some possible concerns journalists might have brought up? Well, how about how there was no consultation done with the citizens of Canada before this happened? Maybe, can't, maybe Canadians don't want to just hand our borders over to the UN. Maybe we don't like the idea of having to say yes to everyone who asks to move here. We are a democracy last time I checked and we never voted on this. Maybe we could talk about how we're going to pay for this. The average Canadian citizen already pays 42.5% of their earnings in taxes. Is this going to go up? Will we be paying more taxes or will we lose some of the things our taxes are covering right now? Because what the PAC tells us is that every migrant is going to cost a lot of money. Not to mention the $600 million a year to pay off the journalists to not ask these questions. Some estimate this cost is going to cost Canada trillions of dollars a year. What about some of the problems that are in the document? Like when it says countries have to have free speech and then says anyone who says anything bad about the plan should be punished. Or when it says free press and then also says to bribe them, educate them, give them the terminology and then punish them if they don't do it. What about diseases? Diseases that might come. Is our healthcare ready for a possible outbreak of diseases that we've never had in North America? What about our schools? Will our teachers be able to still teach if there's suddenly an extra population of students that don't speak English? How full will our schools be? And what will happen to the Canadian students that we already have, especially the ones that need extra help? What if crime suddenly increases? Europe had a problem with that, especially France. Exactly how many migrants are we bringing here? Is there going to be a cap? Will be there be a number that eventually says, sorry, Canada's full? 
What about the refugees, those fleeing persecution? If we bring the very same people here to Canada that the refugees are fleeing from, what happens to those refugees? And then, of course, there's ISIS. Yeah, we, I know we already have members of ISIS here, but maybe let's not bring in any more. Those are just a few problems I can see just off the top of my head. Not to mention that the UN will be in charge and we didn't vote for them. There's no one higher than the UN. They're the top. There is no one the UN answers to. Now, why would the UN think this is necessary? Wait for it. Are you ready? Climate change. That's right. They're saying we have to do this because of climate change. Now, can I say I told you so? I mean, I told you climate change was a hoax and would be used by the UN to gain control of our country. And I've been saying that for about five years. Well, here we go. All right, at this point, you're probably saying, Laura Lee, you don't actually believe this, do you? I mean, you don't think Canada's writing something with the UN that's going to take away our sovereignty and end up opening our borders to whoever wants to come here. I mean, come on, you're better than this. You're not a crazy conspiracy person. This is kind of beneath you. And I know some of you are thinking that. Well, let's just see what the other Western countries are thinking about this pact. Australia has said, we're not going to sign this document. It will mean surrendering our sovereignty to the UN. Austria has said they can't sign it because Austria's sovereignty is their highest priority. While Germany is planning on signing it, it's become a hot button issue that might cause her to lose her position in government. The party fighting against her has said, and I quote, the pact is a hidden resettlement plan for more economic migrants. Hungarian government has said the pact will lead to a fresh wave of migration because it concerns the fact that migration is a positive process that must be encouraged and accordingly new migration channels must be opened and migrants cannot be differentiated based on their legal status. Because of this, Hungary will not sign the document. The United States is just a hard pass. So far, the countries that have said, no, thank you, will pass on giving away our sovereignty. The United States, Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, Austria, Australia, Israel, and just today, Croatia said that they will also pass on this. In a few weeks, the UN will meet. They will discuss and ratify the agreement. If Canada signs, the UN will then decide how our borders and migration will work. The Conservative Party brought this up in the House and asked Trudeau what he was going to do. And he said he supports it 100% and is excited that Canada will be taking a lead on this and setting an example for the world. Okay, so when I discuss this... All right, so we are going to now talk about... Um, an episode, a clip from an episode in episode 42. So in this episode, I talk about something that I usually try not to talk about because as soon as you mention it, people say, okay, you're just a crazy conspiracy theory person and they just don't want to listen to anything you have to say. And honestly, the first time I heard about this uh, agenda from the UN, I said the same thing that this is obviously a conspiracy theory. This could not possibly happen. There's no way. This obviously is made up. Um, but the, when I actually looked into it, you can read it on the UN website. It's there. It's it's real. Uh, so we are going to talk about it. Hopefully you don't just write me off as a crazy conspiracy theorist. Um, but here you go. This is our last little clip about the UN. So to understand this, we have to travel all the way back to 1989. A group is meeting for the first time in the UN. They're beginning plans for a new way of life. They start with an envision of what they want the 21st century to look like. And then they begin to discuss how to implement that vision. They have at that time 5.2 billion people and convincing 5.2 billion people to go along with a plan of a few people in a UN office that will not be easy. The group continues to meet and plan and build a comprehensive plan on how to implement this into the world population. Now the year is 1992. Our population is now over 5.5 billion. We're in Rio, Brazil at the Earth Summit. In 1992 in Rio, Brazil, the UN meets for the Conference on the Environment, the Rio Earth Summit. 
The group shares their dream and their plans for implementation. Imagine with me you're in this room. It's a large room. The UN symbol is behind the presenter. Everyone is sitting behind tables. The tables all have a book ready to be opened. You pick up your earpiece and put it in your ear. The other leaders do the same. Whatever the presenter says will be repeated into your earpiece in your language. This is supposed to be the presentation that will change the world forever. The presenter begins with the dream. To move all of civilization into urban housing and to create huge lands of wilderness for animals to be free to move and live with zero impact from humans. These cities will be walkable cities with no cars and only perhaps trains. These populations will work with little use of resources such as water and power and will not use any carbon pollution. There will be a smaller population in this new vision and no one would own any private property. We would all, but a smaller group of all, live together in peace. Peaceful, walkable towns where we all share everything. You hear this and you think, this is impossible. Why are we wasting time on this? You're from North America and this looks like a bad sci-fi movie. But the presenter is not finished. They continue, but how could you possibly convince 5.2 billion people to do this? Here's where the plan comes into the place. It will need to be implemented slowly over time. The plan is presented to 171 countries at the Rio Earth Summit. It has 30 chapters. As the leaders book, as the leaders take the book, they see the front cover. You look down at the table. You have the same book. You look at it. Agenda 21, a comprehensive plan of action to take globally, nationally, and locally by organizations of the United Nations system. A little farther down the title page, you read, Governments and local groups in every area in which humans impact the environment. You open the cover to see the table of contents. The book is divided into four sections. Section 1, Social and Economic Dimensions. There's eight chapters in this section. Section 2, Conservation and Management of Resources for Development. Fourteen chapters in this one. Section 3, Strengthening the Role of Major Groups, and there's 10 chapters in this one. And Section 4, Means of Implementation. And you flip through the agenda, and the 30 chapters, the group begins to present the agenda. They give the vision of these human settlement zones and these vast lands for wildlife. They talk about the end of national sovereignty, no private property, changing the family, ending aggregation, and even getting rid of paved roads and farmlands, no more fossil fuels, and everything will be done with a word you hear, sustainable. It's 1992, and it seems crazy. No chance the world will ever accept this. In fact, a few months later, some American men get a hold of this book and begin to tell other Americans who mock them, because this is weird and has no chance of ever working. But today, in 2018, we can see it's already started to take these ways. Here are some of the ways they planned on implementing this plan. Number one, think locally, act globally. That term is actually invented by the UN. People are less afraid of local government than global government. So the local government has to be the ones to start the implementation. Chapter two, educate the children or don't educate them to be more precise. The children must be taught environmentalism above all other subjects. They must believe it above all else. All other education must be dumbed down. A world leader begins reading the book he has on his table. He, has, he gets to the chapter on education for sustainable development. Is this right? You turn to your page yourself and you read, quote, generally, more highly educated people who have higher income consume more resources than poor educated people who tend to have lower income. In this case, more education increases the threat to sustainability. That seems a little wacky, but when it's time to vote, 171 countries raised their hands and agreed to accept the agenda. 171 countries, including Canada and the United States, vote to accept this agenda. All the work the group has done over the last three years has paid off. Now the question is, will the world accept it? The year is 1992. A man named Reed Noss publishes a plan called the Wilderness Project. The published plan has a picture of the United States. There are red zones. These would be areas where humans may not enter for any reason. 
There are yellow zones where humans may pass through to get to the allowed zones. There are green zones where cities will be built and people can live. There are pink zones for Indian reservations and gray zones for the military. Yellow and red are most of the United States. The paper is ignored. No one cares, but the plan is for this map to be the reality in 80 years. That was 26 years ago. So how's it going so far? The government of America has implemented regulations that have forced landowners to give up large portions of their land to the American government. In Florida alone, 2 million acres have been taken by the government. This was under what was called the Florida Forever Campaign. And this is happening all across the United States. I was in grade 9 in 1992. Sometimes I look around the world and think, what is happening? So much has changed since 1992 and maybe there's a reason. Those starting grade 1 in 1992 would be 32 years old today. The group has been under this education plan all the way through school and they're now in their late 20s and early 30s. They've been properly programmed through elementary school, high school, and college. But really, one vote the UN had in 1992? Come on, nobody cares about that. Well, in 1997, the year I finished high school, and if you did the math, we had five years of high school in Ontario at the time, the UN is meeting again. The meeting is called Rio Plus Five. The leaders are getting together to see how the plan was going to create the vision of Agenda 21. Bill Clinton is the President of the United States, and he announces that with an executive order, he has created the Order of Sustainable Development. Laws were being implemented, but there was no parliamentary vote, just Bill Clinton putting it into laws. The group looks to see specifically how the Western countries are moving to make implications. They agree the education of the children is working. They agree that they need to train the children to think of themselves as, and here's a term, global citizens. Loyalty must move from the family to the government, and the idea of sustainable development must be seen as the only way to save the world. The Wildlands Project must be implemented into more Western countries. But there's a significant problem they see. There's an uneven trend. The West is getting wealthier, and that must be stopped. Also, the population in 1997 was now 5.9 billion. The growth in population needed to end. The countries vote again, this time to accept a new assembly resolution S-192. The resolution is to increase the education of youth, put an end to the uneven wealth of the West, and find ways to stop the growth in the population. Stopping the growth of the population will be done through abortion. Making the wealth more even, well, that will be by taking money from the citizens in the West and giving it to other countries. This will be done through raising taxes in the West and the Western countries agreeing to give the other countries money. Lots of money. Millions and millions of dollars. They also begin to convince the populations in the West that they are bad for being wealthy. They must feel guilty about their wealth. It's now 2002. A group meets in a large auditorium. They're excited to hear the speaker. They've paid well for these seats. Bill Gates is going to be giving what is called a TED Talk. It's a newer thing, but it's growing in popularity. Those sitting in the seats are excited. He stands and he's speaking about environmentalism. We must get our C2 down to zero. There's a simple formula. C2 is when you add up people, services, energy, and the cost per unit of energy. The only way to get our C2 to zero is to take each of these groups to zero. There's a nervous laughter in the group. Bill Gates is a genius. He's well-respected, but he's not saying kill all the people, right? Is he? No. People look at each other waiting for the part where he explains, obviously we don't kill all the people. And he says, and I quote, if we do a good job, with new vaccines, healthcare, and reproductive health services, we could lower our population by 10 to 15%. Most in the room not in agreement. See, not kill everyone, just lower our population by 10 to 15%. But some are horrified. You can still find this clip on YouTube. Let me read it again. It says, 
If we do a good job with new vaccines, healthcare, and reproductive health services, we could lower our population by 10 to 15%. That same year, the leaders of the world meet in Johannesburg. It's year 2002, and it's been 10 years since they voted yes to Agenda 21. For some countries, we have the same leaders. For others, we've changed governments a few times, but really, it makes no difference. So here in Johannesburg, the leaders meet at the World Summit on Sustainable Development, Earth Summit 2002. I was getting married, just as a side note. At this summit, there's another vote, and every country signs and agrees. They will have full commitment to have full implementation of Agenda 21. They'll push now for control of the air through regulating carbon emission. They will push for control of the land with sustainable development and control of the land or, and control of the sea with environmental regulations. The United States agrees to implement the Biodiversity and Wildlands Project. And this is a quote from that project. Humans are to be concentrated in human settlement zones, consisting of high-rise dwelling units that are to be constructed along railroad tracks. The rail must be the means of transportation. Private automobiles will not be permitted. The group meets again in 2015. The world population is now 7.3 billion, but 54% but of the world now lives in cities. The plan is going well. The population is being pushed into the right direction. In 1980s, when the group first met to dream, only 42% of the population was in cities. They have jumped 14%. It's exciting for the group. They have some other really great changes. People are using terms like sustainable development in everyday languages. People are even majoring in it in university. Local governments have all been implementing regulations, and the population of the West have agreed to everything with little to no pushback. Those who have pushed back have been mocked by the rest of the population. Perhaps it's time for a bigger jump. Today, a document is handed out. You're here again, sitting at one of the many lines of tables. You take a look at the document each leader is receiving. It says on the cover, the future we want. It's a new agenda to be run alongside Agenda 21. It's Agenda 2030, Sustainable Development Goals. While Agenda 21 was geared towards local governments and local schools, Agenda 2030 is about federal governments. How will the federal government push its citizen into the dream of Agenda 21? Agenda 2030 has 17 goals and they all sound great. Things like ending poverty, bringing education to the world, clearly a wonderful thing. 180 countries signed the pledge. On December the 12th, 2015, the world leaders meet in Paris. There are 196 state representatives here today, and they will all sign the Paris Agreement, or the Paris Accord. Their goal, to increase the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels, and to limit the increase to 1.5 Celsius, since this would substantially reduce the risk and effects of climate change. They will do all this by taxing its citizens. The tax will go toward fuels for automobiles. This will be a way to encourage the behavior of their citizens. What behavior? Well, we want them to move into the cities where they can use public transportation. They want automobiles to be gone, and they know the only way to do that is to make gas unaffordable for the average citizen. It's now 2017, America has a new president, Trump. Not only did he immediately withdraw from the Paris Accord, he has overturned regulations in every state and given back hundreds of acres of land to private citizens. He is overturning about 20 years of regulation. Could one man ruin the entire plan? All right, so there you go. That was our episode for today. Lots of clips. I'm going to get back to enjoying Christmas and try not to think about the fact that the UN's trying to take over the world. But even though life can be kind of scary sometimes when we look out there, and sometimes it's easier to just pretend none of those things are happening, 
and bury our head in the sand. There's two things I want you to think about. One, it is important to know what's happening. I mean, I'm a parent. I have four children um, who are teenagers, and I want to make sure that I am leaving them a country where they can have freedom and they can have the same opportunities that I had. So we can't just bury our head in the sand. At the same time, we can't walk around completely fearful that the world is going to end because we can do something. We could start by educating ourselves, educating others, and then we can go out and do something. We can change things by speaking about it, by letting people know, and by voting. And this next year coming up, we do have a chance in Canada to vote and we can make a difference with our votes. So as we go finish off this year, heading into the new year, yes, there are scary things happening and we need to know about those and not just pretend that's not happening, but also we don't have to be afraid. Also, we know that God is in control and I always end every episode talking about God and remembering that he is in control and that he does want to rescue us from our sins. He does want to save us. And I'm just going to end actually this episode with just that last reminder again that God loves you. He cares about you. He sees you even if you think no one else sees you. He sees you and he loves you and he wants to be part of your life if you'll let him. I'm Loralee Siemens. Next week will be our last episode of the year.